Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 210, and today's guests are Pyle Agarwal, Devarkaran, and Catherine Taylor Reddy at 406 Ventures. Pyle is a partner at 406 Ventures. She joined the firm about six years ago and co-leads the digital health practice. Catherine joined 406 Ventures this year as a VP, and she is also aligned with the digital health sector. Needless to say, the healthcare industry has gone through radical transformation due to the pandemic, and a lot of the technologies that support the industry have been accelerated. So we had a lot to talk about. Named after the legendary baseball player Ted Williams, 406 Ventures is an early-stage venture capital firm that has raised over $1 billion across four core funds and two opportunity funds. The firm invests in innovative IT and services companies in data and cloud, digital health, and cybersecurity. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Pyle and Catherine's background and how they ended up breaking into the VC industry, all the details on 406 Ventures, including their investment area focus, stage of investing, and portfolio examples, a look into the trends across the digital health industry, thoughts on helping to improve the diversity numbers in the VC industry, and career advice on how to land a job as a venture capitalist, what makes the position as a VC so difficult, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that every Monday morning we send out two weekly digest emails? There is one for Boston and one for New York. It is your weekly email to stay connected to all the must-know information from the local tech scene. It includes information on companies, jobs, events, deals, and more. Go to venturefizz.com backslash email and look for the weekly Tech Buzz editions to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Pyle and Catherine. Pyle and Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Kate, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. I am excited because 406 Ventures is one of the top VCs uh, out there doing lots of lots of great investing. And we're recording this, um, you know, in the midst of a pandemic. So with your focus, uh, you know, a big piece of what we're going to talk about today is digital health. Um, I thought it'd be good to talk about that up front, just a little bit about how the pandemic has really accelerated a lot of things in the world of digital health. I mean, COVID-19 and the healthcare industry, it just was like a whirlwind. And there's been so many advancements that had to happen uh, instantaneously. So I thought that would be a good kind of leaping off point. So what have you witnessed as it relates to digital health and, and the world of COVID? Yeah, and it's, it's interesting to talk about the acceleration that COVID has provided in digital health. And I'll, I'll underscore that uh, in a few ways. The first is, is virtual care, right? The, the adoption of virtual care by both patients, but more importantly, by providers. Um, and, you know, Forrester Research, I just saw a stat recently that said in the year of 2020, there are over 260 million virtual patient visits. Wow. Right? Um, yeah, that's, I think that's just a, such a great stat because it's, it's a decade that digital health was moved forward in areas like virtual care. The other areas that I'd highlight that really intersect with where we spend time are um, you know, behavioral health, just the acknowledgement that mental and behavioral health is a disease, it impacts people and it's, it's intertwined with um, other parts of your physical and medical health. I think that has accelerated because of COVID um, and therefore the, the investment into that. And then I think just the underpinning and, and acknowledgement of sort of racial and social inequalities and how that impacts healthcare 
has also been sort of the curtain has been lifted because of COVID. Um, and so these are all areas where we've we've made investments over the last you know 12 months. So they're sort of top of mind for us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I think the other thing that uh, that I would add is that, you know, I think anyone who's been in healthcare for a while is, is kind of well acquainted with the idea and the trend moving from fee-for-service medicine, fee-for-service reimbursement to more more value-based models where you have more alignment in terms of, of payments between providers and payers. And, you know, I, I spent most of the pandemic so far in, in a different stage of investing in, in growth equity and private equity, which has has really been, uh, which has loved fee-for-service medicine, right? You know, a lot of the, a lot of private equity models in healthcare are really based on kind of specialist, highly reimbursed fee-for-service models and it was really interesting for me to see early on in the pandemic, all of a sudden, all these private equity investors were, were talking about value-based care and how they would love to, to kind of be more, uh, be, be more involved in kind of that transition to value when they all of a sudden really saw the benefit of, of kind of these different sort of reimbursement models. So, so I think it's really interesting to see that this is also, I think, accelerating that trend away from fever service and, and towards, towards other kinds of reimbursement. So true. Yeah. I mean, the, the, it's just, it's fascinating to see how so many different industries were just radically transformed. Uh, and, you know, it's a lot of it's been in, in a positive way. It's unfortunate that it had to be a pandemic that fostered that adoption. But, um, uh, but you know, for the long run, hopefully some of these advancements uh, are going to benefit, uh, you know, maybe healthcare or other industries over the long run. But yeah, I think that would be the silver lining. Yeah. Pyle, let's talk about your background. So uh, talk about, you know, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Sure. So I'm a, I'm a Boston gal, born and raised. Uh, so only fitting that I, I, I'm part of a Boston-based uh, VC firm. But I did spend the first uh, four years out of my first five years in India um, growing up. But outside of that, I've largely lived in the Boston area. And as a child, you know, there's sort of one common um, characteristic I'd highlight that I was just always really curious about sort of how things worked. You know, always be pulling things apart, taking them apart, putting them back together, and in particular with electronics, right? So it was not surprising that I then ended up at MIT, um, being a Boston native, sort of seeing, being familiar with MIT, being local, but also just that that uh, curiosity I, ha I had within me around how things work that I ended up at MIT. Take, you know, studying the hardest major there, which is electrical engineering. I didn't really know what I was getting into, but it was because I thought it would help me understand how things worked, you know? Um, and so it was a dream come true to, to pursue that. But I think MIT became um, even more of a dream because uh, I met my husband there, Sanjay, who was pre-med um, and is now a cardiologist at Brigham Women's Hospital. So um, sort of our worlds intertwine now, but... Um, you know, those were, that's sort of the early, early part of my story. And I mean, anytime I, I'm walking around like MIT and it just, I'm always just like blown away. I'm like, everyone here is brilliant. You know, I'm just like, always like in awe. And especially like, like, how do you get it to MIT? Like, that's just like, like, it just blows my mind. Like you must be beyond intelligence, best score, you know, like just like your, your grades, like everything, achievements and all these things. Like to, it's, it's such, such an accomplishment. And so I, I continue to um, interview for MIT candidates. I don't think I can get into MIT anymore these days. You <laughs> I know? knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> incredible. Um, and it so is, I think yeah. part of it was um, was luck. Part of it was um, you know the story of my childhood and and um, sort of some of the things that I had had overcome and accomplished. But um, you know I think 
uh, yeah, you just, it's, a, it's an amazing place. And what I will say differentiates MIT vis-a-vis -vis some of the places where you have academic excellence is I think MIT has a strong belief that you can't succeed without collaboration. You just can't. You, you literally cannot survive MIT if you go at it alone. And so I think that was one of the most helpful, helpful things I learned there. Very cool. So what did you do afterwards? So I, you know, um, went into a career at the intersection of finance and technology. So I started my career um, at JP Morgan doing tech investment banking because I just, I, I was fascinated by business side of things. And I just wanted to learn how finance and that underpinning worked. So I got my finance boot camp at JP Morgan. I was there though during the height of the 2008 crisis. So that made it a very interesting time where I nearly almost didn't have a job and every day was sort of speculative in that regard. But then um, after that two-year training, um, I went into investing and I went to a growth equity firm called Spectrum Equity. I was in the Boston office and focused on investing in tech companies uh, in around software, information services, security, things of that nature. But what I'm most grateful for um, from Spectrum, not only was where, where I learned investing, but where I learned sourcing and I effectively learned sales. So Spectrum is of, of um, you know, the group of investors that, that believes in sort of associate-driven sourcing. And so I had to go out and find needles in a haystack and convince founders to take capital. And that's a tough job. I don't think people appreciate what that job entails because a lot of it is just cold reaching out and talking to oh, yeah. those the companies and just saying, hey. It just, it's, um, I mean, I have some incredible stories from sort of what I did while I was at Spectrum to convince founders that they should take a call with me or that... Um, you have to build a level of respect and trust. And I think that learning that early on in my career has taken me a long way to sort of being successful in, in venture capital. So did Spectrum, um, loved investing and, and got the sense that it would be helpful if I got my MBA um, to, in order to stay in investing. And so that was sort of the, the premise with which I went to get my MBA at Harvard um, and ended up starting a company while I was there. So as a founder and CEO of a company called Spot Rocket built a product, sold to customers, got funding, ran it, you know, long story short, we ended up shutting it down. And there were as many lessons in that story as there were in sort of, you know, it had it been, you know, even more successful. What did the company do? What was, what was the idea behind the company? So the company was, you know, we developed an algorithm to rank 20,000 global startups so that we could inform students on which ones were actually hot and which ones were not. So that you could figure out where you should work because we were in a moment of time where students were trying to figure out startups in the wild wild west of you know which ones should you actually go work for and which ones shouldn't you and we monetized by job postings um and and so it was actually a two-sided marketplace that ended up getting a lot of adoption but you know hard channel to monetize we were slower to, to build our own proprietary data set and, and effectively got cut off at the knees at some point on that um, particularly when we were in M and A discussions, so there were a lot of really good nuggets of learning um, like that that have helped that I've carried forward. Um, I also worked at a company called Eventbrite in the Bay Area. I was in the in the Corp Dev group. Worked very closely with Kevin Hart, Randy Bafuma over there, and it was those two experiences that made me uh, recruit for venture capital instead of going back into growth equity. And so that's when about six six and a half years ago I was recruiting and. Um, you know, I, I heard of 406 Ventures in Boston and 100 stars aligned. And, and I joined the firm really early on um, when we were, we just raised our third fund. Um, and so sort of nearly six years later, 
I actually transitioned from tech and, and started focusing on healthcare um, because there's such a great opportunity at the intersection of tech and healthcare, given my tech experience, particularly uh, some of the, the learnings via osmosis from my husband, I suppose. Um, but um, I now co-lead our digital health practice at 406 with my partner, uh, Liam Donahue. Okay. All right, Catherine, we're going to go through the same, same story here. So uh, where did you grow up and what were you like as a child? Yeah, great. Uh, so I grew up mostly in, in Houston, Texas, so also spent um, some formative years in the East Bay, California from when I was 12 to 16. Uh, and, you know, as a child, I think similar to Pyle, I was definitely, definitely kind of very, very curious and like to ask a lot of questions. So uh, my interest tend to focus more on I actually loved animals and, uh, and could not learn enough about them. And my, my first career goal was to become a veterinarian, which, uh, which obviously did not happen. And I think that's for the, probably for the best, but, uh, but who knows, maybe it was kind of the beginning of my interest in healthcare a little bit. Um, but, but then when it, when it came time to, to look at colleges, actually by that time, my, my interest had shifted a little bit and I was, I was really interested in, in international development. And, and that's actually really what led me to, to Tufts because they had such a great program in international relations and, and kind of really had this, this kind of community service and, and public service focus. And, you know, not to mention I lived on the Gulf Coast and the West Coast and, and kind of fell in love with Boston and the East Coast when I visited. So, um, you know, so I, I went to Tufts for undergrad and I've more or less stuck around Boston ever since then. And, you know, when, when I was there, I did study international relations with a focus on global health and, um, and quantitative economics, which I found kind of a, a really good combination of things to have both kind of some, some soft and some hard skills. Um, th that I could develop there. And then my, my most formative experience at Tufts was, was actually work that I did in Guatemala with a student group that I, that I co-ran. So it was an organization called, um, called Build that, that I started leading my freshman year, actually. And, and we did, we did a, a lot of work on a, on a coffee farm that we found in Guatemala and, and funded 25 or $30,000 worth of development projects there through, through grants that we got through the university and and some other sources and um believe it or not that was actually the real beginning of my interest in healthcare because the more time i spent in guatemala the more i learned about a lot of the global health challenges there and and specifically learned that guatemala actually had the highest rate of chronic child malnutrition in the in the western hemisphere um which was which is kind of surprising because it's not the lowest income country and, and i was really curious as to why so i ended up doing my my senior honors thesis to, to figure that out and, and did that in economics. Um, and, and so, you know, again, kind of thought that I'd be going the, the global health route and kind of continue to do some similar development work. But, um, but it was around that time that the, that the ACA had been passed. And, you know, there was this whole national conversation going on about, about the U.S. healthcare system and how, you know, everyone kept talking about how broken it was. And I really had this kind of moment of realization that, you know, there are plenty of problems in, in my own country that I was born and raised in. And, you know, what, I'd probably be much more effective working here in a language that I'm actually fully fluent in mm -hmm. rather than trying to, to continue to do work abroad. So um, so kind of at the at the last minute, I decided to re recruit for consulting. And uh, it was a, a pretty big shift from from working in Guatemala, but ended up at a at a consulting firm called Putnam Associates is based here in Boston and uh, works with with big pharma pharmaceutical companies and 
And that was really kind of the beginning of my healthcare education. And I think that experience really validated for me that that I was really interested in healthcare and and started to learn more about how the system was changing and and how reimbursement models were changing and and started to realize that kind of the pharmaceutical side wasn't really for me, especially since I didn't have kind of a, a scientific or, or technical background. But started to get really interested in in how payers and providers were changing and and a lot of the um, the changes to to kind of the infrastructure of the system as a whole. So um, so I ended up going down to to DC for a little over a year to work at uh, a firm called the Advisory Board Company, which is now owned by Optum, a, a subsidiary of United, and and did a lot of work there with with big health systems and provide and and health plans to to try to figure out um, what technology products we could launch that could kind of meet their ongoing needs. So kind of continued my healthcare education there and then and then um, had an opportunity to go to a venture capital firm called Excel Venture Management back here in Boston. And so that was my first time in investing and and really figured out that I I loved it. Um, I really enjoyed working with working with entrepreneurs, getting to really getting to kind of sit on top of, of the system as a whole and, and think about all the ongoing trends at a macro level in the healthcare system, but then also getting to go really deep and and you know, go really to really understand certain certain trends in healthcare and kind of the specific areas where our our companies were working, and also just found it you know really fun to to help support entrepreneurs through that process. So, um, so you know, similar to Pyle, realize that an, an MBA can can be really helpful in uh, in kind of building a career and investing. So, ended up taking an opportunity to to go to HBS, but uh, but I knew that I wanted to kind of ultimately have a career in, in investing specifically in healthcare. Uh, and you mentioned before you were in private equity before joining 406. So what brought you to 406? Yeah, yeah. So uh, so a lot of things, you know, I think first and foremost, I had gotten to know Pyle and Liam, um, who, who, you know, lead healthcare at 406 since since my time at Excel, you know, the, the Boston healthcare investing community is a small one. And, and, you know, I, I had an opportunity to get to know them a little bit and just always kind of really, really respected the team and, and thought that they had such a great approach to, to investing. And I think what's, what's really important, what was really important to me in thinking about the decision is that, you know, it's, there's a really strong firm culture internally, which I think is really important, but just as important, that culture is very oriented towards helping entrepreneurs, right? So, you know, I think the firm is great at being very focused on what we do. You know, we're focused on early stage. We're, we're focused in, in, each of us is focused on our particular vertical. And so we really know how to kind of help and support entrepreneurs and the challenges that they face. And, you know, have, have uh, all of us have some kind of entrepreneurial or, or operational experience. So, you know, we've been there. We've also supported companies through similar challenges. And I just thought that that was really important to be, you know, to be successful. And it was a culture that I wanted to be a part of. So um, when, when the stars aligned and I had the opportunity, just just couldn't turn it down to, to come join the team. It was our luck that we were able to, to, to catch Catherine at the right time at the right place to be able to make this happen. Timing, timing is definitely, definitely key when it comes to building teams. Now, all right, so let's talk in detail about 406 Ventures. So obviously, uh, if you're from Boston, you probably know what 406 means, uh, or if you're a baseball fanatic that, you know, you know, that's Ted Williams, but what I did learn that I didn't know was your logo and how that related to Ted Williams. So, so yeah, 
what's the logo like what does that mean yeah and i think that's that's sort of um the key to the analogy so as you alluded to, um, 0.406 is Ted Williams batting average in 1941, highest ever achieved. But the way that he did that um, is he mapped out, he did a heat map of the strike zone and basically said, you know, I'm going to map out where I have the highest probability of getting on base. And I'm not going to swing at every ball that comes through the strike zone. I'm going to swing where I have that highest chance. And so our logo is that, that map of the strike zone. Um, and it's a great analogy for, for not only venture, but also 406's philosophy. We're not going to invest in every great company. We're going to invest where we have deep expertise and where we've been investing for the last 16 years and continue to sort of, you know, double down on that. So we invest in three segments. Those segments are digital health uh, to about 50% of our activity. We've got uh, uh, practice in cybersecurity, and we've got to practice in data and cloud. And so that's what we've been doing forever. And that's what we're going to sort of continue to do. We're also going to be really focused by stage, talking about that strike zone. We think we have expertise around a certain stage, and that stage is, is Series A um, investing, where we, um, frankly, when the firm was founded, there was a bit of a gap, especially on the East Coast around that Series A capital. Um, and so we typically will lead or co-lead the Series A with a three to $7 million check initially, and then support entrepreneurs as they scale. Um, and then, you know, we're also going to be, you know, geographically focused um, so we can be helpful. So you'll see a majority of our investments will be in Boston and New York. Um, that being said, we do have, you know, a, a breath across our portfolio just because, you know, innovation is everywhere, but we just have a really high hurdle because we want to be able to be be helpful um, in, in those in those partnerships. Um, and then I think, you know, um, to that strike zone analogy, we're going to be really thesis driven as it relates to our portfolio construction and make sure that, um, you know, we're being really thoughtful about what we're investing in. So that's kind of, you know, where that that we think that whole, um, you know, 406 Ventures name makes a ton of sense. It also doesn't hurt that it puts us at the top of any alphabetically ordered list. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's a great point. I never thought of that. That's a big, big bonus instead of uh, X-Ray Ventures. You'd be like at the bottom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, now, but I never knew that about Ted Williams either. So that uh, not only was he just a phenomenal talent and one of the greatest baseball players of all time, but he had a very data-driven approach to his to the art of what he was doing. That's amazing. And so. he had the vision to complement it because you had to, he had to be fast enough to be with his eyes and his vision to be able to actually see whether the ball was coming into that area of the strike zone. So, I mean, I think another great analogy to, to venture, right? You you know, you have to have the right vision as things come through and, um, and decide if you want to um, be focused or if you want to sort of have a, a wide strategy. Well, you obviously have a, an amazing portfolio with some great, you know, exits and examples like cloud health and carbon black uh and there's many others that are you know scaled and have done great things in the boston tech scene and many investments that are hopefully just emerging but so where, where are you at like what what fund are you guys investing out of and what the sure, yeah are? so we we're, we're investing out of our fourth fund um, that we raised last year uh, we're managing about a billion of capital across four core funds and two opportunity funds. The opportunity funds allow us to continue um, to support our companies as they they raise, you know, later later and later stage rounds. Um, and uh, and as I mentioned earlier, we'll only do about 24 investments per fund across all of our segments. So it is a very disciplined approach. Um, and and I'd say that you know the last year has been one of our our busiest uh, years in history. 
Isn't that crazy to think like, uh, so with venture fizz, we, we, we are at a record number of jobs on our site right now. And if you told me that a year ago, I'd be like, no way that's impossible. Uh, we're going into a pandemic and everyone's just going to stop and hold their breath. But tech was so resilient. You know, we started the conversation by talking about how industry has radically changed and technology was the enabler for that acceleration. So I'm grateful to be aligned with the tech industry. That's for sure. Um, so, so Catherine, talk about, you know, uh, Pyle mentioned the thesis-driven approach. So, you know, as it relates to healthcare and you joining the firm, like what, what, like what, what areas are you excited about as it relates to healthcare and disruption? Yeah, sure. So, so I'd say kind of first from the broadest possible level, I think one thing that, you know, again, really attracted me to, to Forest approach is that we're really focused on, on companies that, that improve the delivery of care, right. And that, and that help move the healthcare system as a whole towards towards more value-based care goals, towards ultimately towards better population health. And so, uh, a couple of areas within that that you know I think I and and we are excited about is um, you know areas like oncology, like women's health, um, PBM, and pharmacy. I think those are a few areas where we're spending time, and a, and a common thread through all of those is is that they're all very kind of large and growing cost areas. And, and, you know, can, can talk about each one a little bit more in particular, um, you know, I think on the oncology side, we, the, the healthcare system, you know, there's been a lot of, of, of research that's resulted in us being much better at diagnosing and, and treating a number of different, uh, you know, cancer conditions. But I think as, you know, as, as many people have experienced in their personal lives or with their families, it's still a, a very challenging and confusing time for patients, right? And I think there's still a lot that can be done to improve support for those patients as they go through, you know, kind of their entire cancer journey, so to speak, and in terms of improving how they're able to, uh, to kind of anticipate and manage symptoms, both during active treatment and afterwards, what to expect throughout that process, uh, what to expect uh, once they're hopefully in recovery and, and kind of into more of the survivorship phase and, and really how to lighten the burden on, on their care team and, and provide the patient with more support throughout that process. And then, you know, on the, on the women's health side, uh, you know, one area that I'm, I'm really interested in and, and not just because my husband is an OBGYN resident, um, is is kind of the the prenatal and perinatal um, you know system. I think that a, a lot of us who've been in healthcare investing have seen just a ton of solutions out there targeted really at women with the most resources as as kind of they go through as they go through that process. But but I think the system really often doesn't work very well for for patients with the least amount of resources, and and that's important for a number of reasons. You know. One because that's that's where kind of the the worst outcomes tend to happen, and and you know almost half of all births in this country are, are covered by Medicaid. It's just a huge number of people who who I think are often you know not necessarily getting getting the care they need because the system isn't designed for them. So so really interested in in finding solutions that can specifically improve care for that particular population. Um, and then on the the pharmacy and, and PBM side, you know, I think you know again just huge and growing cost area for health plans for self-insured employers, and and it's just also such a complicated system, right? I think um, you know in my last job, I actually did a lot of work with um, with unions and and heard a lot of union leaders complaining and just being so frustrated with their PBM vendors and not understanding the contracts, even though they've been doing this for 30 years and, 
And I think that that system is just, you know, really ripe for disruption and, and ways to improve, improve care in that way. And then, you know, I think patients aren't much better served by it, right? And especially, especially on kind of the complex condition and specialty side, you know, I think it's it's often very difficult for people to navigate that system and, and get the drugs they need in a timely way. And and again, I think there's just there, there's a lot that can be done to to fix that. Got it. What are your thoughts, Pyle? And I'll just um, um, add on to that. I think you know, Catherine talked about some of our great active VCs. You know, just stepping back, where we tend to focus is you know, software and tech-enabled services. We're really not afraid of services. In fact, in healthcare, we often believe that sometimes you really do need to have services as part of your offering to really get adoption. Because if you just provided tech to healthcare, you know, sometimes the incumbents and the people don't know what to do with it. So you'll often see this blend of tech services in a lot of our companies. And all of our companies will, the customers are either payers those who bear the risk, whether those are health plans or self-insured employers or hospital systems. We don't do direct-to-consumer investing as a fund, and we don't do direct-to-consumer investing in healthcare. And I think part of that is the belief that if you really want to move the needle in healthcare, you're going to have to follow where the dollars flow. And the dollars flow through these entities. Patients actually, while the burden is increasing on patients, they actually own very little of the healthcare dollar risk. And so therefore sometimes aren't, it, it's not easiest to get a whole bolus of patients if you go direct to consumer, but it's also, you can be quite mission aligned if you sell to a payer, for example, which has all the right incentive to improve outcomes for their members and, and therefore save on their you know, out, outlays of spend. Um, so I think it's just, um, we're, we're of the ilk of, of investors who really focus on what we call enterprise health. Um, and, and it's sexier to call it digital health these days, but that's, that's really what we do is, is where can you provide uh, tech or services at the right time, at the right place, to the right set of patients to really move the needle on medical outcomes and decrease the cost. And it is interesting how you brought up the services element, because that's not something that I usually think of with a VC firm. It's always like, we're enabling, you know, the, you know, investing in tech, 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 tech. But a company like Iora Health, like that's a big piece of their business model is the services side, right? Yeah, I'd argue it's it's mostly their business yeah. model. Um, and and tech is, and we, so we've got a couple interesting companies I'd highlight in that Iora certainly being one of them, which is Boston-based. So it's always great to talk about them. Mm-hmm. They have reimagined primary care and that delivery model specifically for the Medicare Advantage population. Uh, And they do it through a new care team um, of coaches and nurses in addition to the the physician. Um, But they also do use a good amount of technology. Like they built their own uh, EMR system, their own electronic medical record system because the prevailing ones didn't work for the type of model and delivery of care and high touch that they were trying to to infuse. And I think they've turned a couple things on their head, which is, one of which is actually the more that you touch the patient, the better the outcomes are. And right, so really figuring out within your panel of patients who you should be spending more time with, and who's and being a little bit more personalized and predictive around that. And of course, setting up a a, a model and a cost infrastructure that can support that. And, you know, another good services example in our portfolio that highlights some of the themes we've talked about is WellBe Health. Um, they are what's called a PACE program, um, which is a regulated program nationwide, but they were the first for-profit venture-backed company um, to do it. They take care of uh, really triple eligible patients. So you have to be Medicare, 
you have to be Medicaid eligible and you have to be nursing home eligible. So you're often a frail you know, senior. And the goal of the program of PACE is to really allow aging in home. And so WellBe Health has an adult day center, um, but largely there you, you, you live at home and you just, you come and you get elements of your care in the center. And, and WellBe Health bears the full risk of the patient. So your entire goal is to make sure that there are not adverse outcomes and you're not having to you know, visit the ER unnecessarily. And so you're highly incentivized to make sure there's preventative care and you're on top of the care and it's high touch um, and high communication. And so and these are examples of models that services is, you know, they all leverage technology, but at the end of the day, there's a services delivery that is what makes them work. And, and both of those companies are, are scale revenue and growing very, very quickly. And so services um, can also, you know, do great things just like pure tech. But I think there, we are one of the investors that, um, it sort of understands it and appreciates it and, and treats it like in the same vein as sort of a venture venture back model. Got it. Okay. So uh, like, how, how do you go about identifying uh, potential investments? Like if I'm a founder entrepreneur and I want to get on 406, you know, on your radar, how do I go about getting an introductory meeting or, you know, kind of the first steps into the process of, of, you know, your sourcing of deals? Yeah, I'll start with some initial thoughts and then Catherine um, can certainly add to it. So at a high level though, we see just like any other VC firm, we see about 1500 deals a year or more and we're investing in about 10, right? And so that's the funnel you're up against when you're an entrepreneur coming to us or any you know similar VC. So I'll order the, the sources from like highest likelihood of us, you know, sort of being able to sift or rise above the noise, I think. You know, if you're a repeat entrepreneur in our existing portfolio, and now we've had a history where we've had at least a dozen of those, those, you know, are our high likelihood of getting our attention right away. Um, if you come in through a portfolio company executive, I mean, we just believe good founders tend to hang around with good founders, right? So that's a great source of introduction. Um, we are very deep in knowing executives in and around our space, and we have these executive councils. And so if you come in through a member of our executive council, that's another great way. And then we do a lot of syndicating, so our co-investors, um, you know, will often bring us deals and, and things of that nature. So, um, you know, those are sort of top of my list. But we pay attention to every company that comes in inbound, cold, etc. It's just, I think, from an entrepreneur's perspective, though, it's just how do you, how do you rise above the, all that noise? What do you think, Catherine? What's the best? Yeah, uh, not not too much to add, but I do think, um, you know, in in some of my experience with. With other firms, I do think it's unusual how we, you know, we really do pay attention to every single email and, and look at it and, you know, see whether it, see whether it could fit our investment criteria. And we, and we take a lot of calls that, that come in cold. So, um, you know, I think what, what I like about that approach is I think, and, you know, again, goes back to what attracted me to 406 is I think that the team as a whole just has a lot of respect for entrepreneurs and we, and we understand how hard it is. Right. And we'll, we'll, you know, we'll take the look at, at everything, but um, like Kyle said, I think, um, when you see so many deals, there there are a lot of there are a lot of ways that we that we try to think about um, you know what's what what makes the most sense within the context of of the broader industry and our portfolio. And I think having having those connections to to the people in our network is is always really helpful. And and I would add it's it's a big part of how we evaluate deals too, right? Um, you know, getting feedback from um, from from executives at health plans at, at health systems, you know, we really like to 
to kind of be value added throughout the diligence process by connecting entrepreneurs with people that make sense to them. It's a great way for us to get feedback from people who are really knowledgeable about the industry. And, and, you know, hopefully it's, it's often helpful to the entrepreneur too, because they, they can get these great connections and get feedback on what they're doing. And, you know, who knows, sometimes even can, can lead to a commercial opportunity. So, so I think kind of leveraging that network is such a critical part of the whole process. All right. So if I'm an entrepreneur and I'm like, okay, I, I made it. I, I have the first meeting. What do you expect to get out of that first meeting? And I think it, there's sort of the standard, you know, things that, that we're, we're looking for. Um, team is so important at the early stage. So we're trying to just get to know you better. Right. I like to say that uh, entering into a VC relationship is like entering into a marriage or, or perhaps even, you know, longer and harder to get out of. Than <laughs> <laughs> True. We spend more time with you know, for 10 years, um, 20 years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think, look, the people element of this is so important. And it, uh, so we're, we're assessing teams. Are you the right set of founders? Are you well, you know, well positioned to be able to tackle this opportunity? Or do you have some sort of unique um, access, insight, experience that's going to make you successful? Because, you know, there's only so long that something is a, a unique great idea. I mean, it is largely about execution, right? So that's team. You've got to have a big enough market to execute again. So like, you know, the, the companies that usually fall flat on their faces, it's like, it's not a big enough end market out there. And if you think about the way that venture capital works, you know, we invest in a company and we've got to be able, that's initial capital and we'll invest over time. We've got to be able to see a path to making, you know, ideally a 10x return on that capital. And how could we possibly make that big of a return if the company could not be, you know, could not scale to the potential for $100 million of revenue in, in some sequence of years, right? And so if you come to us with an opportunity that it could be a great business, but it does, I, you know, I think it's helpful for founders sometimes to know that not all great businesses are venture capital businesses right. and not our, not all venture capital backed businesses are great businesses, but it just, there's a certain profile of a company that fits for VCs to invest in. And so founding teams market, what's the product like, is their product market fit? What's the competitive landscape, right? Like all the usual things, right? And then how are you going to go to market? And, and for us in particular, I'd say 406 is maniacal about one thing, which is, is there hard dollar ROI? If a customer is going to pay you a dollar, are they going to get, and these are payers and hospital systems we're talking about, you could die by a thousand cuts trying to sell to them and or get them to adopt your technology. When they pay you a dollar, are they going to get two, at least two to three dollars of some sort of return on that in the form of cost savings or increased revenue or something? Because otherwise, you're going to end up in a black hole of pilots or you're going to suffer at the time of renewal or, you know, these are... So um, I think we're really focused on that as a as something that um, uh, may be a little bit particular to us. Got it. So uh, we need more diversity and, and more women in the world of venture capital. So what advice would you give to um, you know people that are trying to land a job in venture capital? Because there's not a lot of these positions out there. Uh, you know, firms operate pretty lean for the most part. I mean, some do scale like an Andreessen Horowitz, but uh, for the most part, it's, it's, it's a very small industry with very limited jobs. So how do we Im improve those numbers? Like what advice would you give to, you know, people of color or women or, you know, on, on landing a job in venture capital? Yeah. I'm so interested in Catherine's opinion on this because she's just, she's just broken in again into another VC firm and she's been through 
so many firms recently, I just add an overlay to say, because I've been in the investing industry for a while now, is that it is such a good time. Um, and there's so much openness in, in the industry to want to create the diverse field on all sides, on the investing side, on the founder side, and there's starting to be all the right pressures. So I think it's a, it's a great time for that. But I will say it's one of the hardest industries to break into. And so, you know, it comes down to fundamentals of what does a VC do day to day? And I've got, you know, some blogging and other podcasts on this topic, but there are, there are sort of four buckets of the job that I like to outline. And you've got to have the skills for that, you know? And so um, just making sure that you have the, the right skills and you, you network your way in. But, uh, but Catherine, you tell us the secret since you... <laughs> I mean, it, it's really along the same lines as what you were saying, Pyle. You know, it's about, I think first and foremost, it's about having having the skills to do the job. It's about, you know, people generally don't get into VC as their first job out of, job out of undergrad, right? They've, um, you know, they've developed a particular expertise in, a, in, you know, in one specific area that they're going to invest in, or, you know, they found other ways to, to kind of build up the skills that you need to be able to you know, source, do due diligence, um, execute on the deals and, and really add value to the company once you've invested in it. So, you know, I think the advice for, for anyone, you know, men or women is to, is to really figure out the ways to build those skills and kind of figure out which pieces of it you're, you're naturally good at it, good at maybe some pieces that you want to kind of um, build up your skill set in other ways and, and kind of really figure that out for yourself. And then, and then, um, and then kind of figure out how to position yourself to the firm. Um, you know, I will say, I think most of us feel like it, it does come down to an element of luck in terms of being at the right place at the right time and, and kind of, you know, getting into a, a firm when there's an opening, but, but you also make your own luck to some extent as well. Um, you know, you, you have to kind of be out there and, and make the connections and, and, you know, show how you can add value to people. Um, and then I think maybe the last thing that I would say is that it's, you know, as Pyle mentioned, there, there, it really has, there has been a huge shift in terms of the focus at the firm level on the importance of diversity. But I think um, a lot of the responsibility still lies with, you know, the current system and, and investors as well, right? And, you know, I think that um, all of us who are in these roles can think more about how do we, how do we look outside traditional pipelines when, you know, when our firms are recruiting, how do we, uh, how do we kind of, allow people to get the experience that they need, whether it's through internships or, um, you know, student fellow programs or whatever it is, so that we're, we're helping to build that pipeline of people who, who can get exposure to, to venture capital that, you know, historically haven't. So I think that, I think that we should, you know, all of, all of those of us who are in the industry should recognize our responsibility as well to, um, you know, to, to keep changing for the better. And we at 406 are, I think, are particularly proud of sort of our commitment to it and our progress. I mean, we've got uh, Maria Serino is one of the founders of our firm, and she's, you know, sort of well-known and and um, in that, but also a pioneer in, in what she's done. Uh, and then we've got, um, you know, Maria and I are both partners at the fund. Um, and then, we of course, have brought on Catherine. But our team in general is 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 more than 50% women if you look across the entire 406 team. So, um, you know, I think we're, we're particularly, like Catherine said, you have to, you have to live it. Um, you can't just talk about it. And, and so we're proud of what we've done. So what's the, what's the hardest part of a job that people probably might not know about in venture capital? You know, from my perspective, um, now that I get the pleasure of being on, involved with so many companies and on so many boards, I think, you know, People think of it as Shark Tank. And I would say that's like 10% of the job. 
is yeah. like, let me hear your pitch and, and, you know, give you some really cool, sometimes snarky feedback, depending on the day or whether I've had my coffee or not. Right. But right. it's, the hardest part is once you make these investments, um, you have to live with them and you have to make them work. And founders will call you all the time asking you questions or how do I do this? How do I do that? And you're in the trenches with them and you have to know the right answers, which is, I think gets back to what does it take to get into venture capital? It is simply really hard to do this job if you don't come from a place of experience or credibility to be able to help founders with those issues. But then it's also just, you know, this, roller coaster ride that you get to be on of company scaling and company building. And that is real hard 24 by seven work. And so we are in it, at least our DNA, we are in it alongside with our founders living that uh, in the trenches with them. And I'd say it's the hardest part of the job, but it's also, it's why we keep doing it. What do you think, Catherine? Yeah. And I think, I think along similar lines, you know, um, the nature of this job is that, is that sometimes, um, you know, it's always a roller coaster, right? Even the most successful companies, there are periods where where you really have to figure it out together and 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 um, kind of help support the entrepreneur along the way. And then, you know, I've had the experience, um, thankfully not at, not at four or six, but certainly at prior firms, where you know sometimes it just doesn't work out, right? And and you have to you have to again kind of support the entrepreneur through that process as well. And you know whether it's kind of a a soft landing through a sale or, you know, or, or some other way to unwind, you know, that's, that's really tough because everyone, you know, the founders put so much into it. Of course, we wouldn't have invested if, if we didn't really believe in, in what the company was doing and everyone has put so much into it. You know, I think, I think there can be kind of an art to that as well. And, and I think it's important to continue to be supportive and, and do what you can throughout that process. But, um, you know, thankfully it, it, it doesn't happen often and, and hasn't, uh, you know, I, I know it for a six, but, um, but it's it's kind of a an, an inevitable part of making early stage bets that that happens, and um, yeah, it's 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 not the most fun part of the job, that's for sure. Got it. All right. So, what are three apps you can't live without, Catherine? I'll start with you. Yeah, sure. Um, I think first and foremost for me, especially pre-COVID when I was actually going places was uh, Google Maps because I'm directionally challenged. So <laughs> me too. I can't, can't get around anywhere without I it. I can't remember street <laughs> names. Like, oh, it's, I'm horrible. Yeah. Yep. Especially, especially around Boston. Uh, you know, I've, I've been here for, for over a decade now, but um, the streets still make no sense to me. So, so, yeah. so I rely on that. Um, and then from kind of a work productivity perspective, I find OneNote incredibly helpful just to keep keep myself organized, um, you know, get all my notes in one place for certain things and keep track of everything. Um, it's, it's a kind of a, a critical part of my uh, of my day to day work is, is keeping organized that way. And then uh, and then I'd say Spotify because I. I really have to work out every day and I need music to do that. So uh, I go through different phases of what I'm listening to while I'm working out, but, uh, but that's always, that's always a highlight of the day. What's, what's on your latest playlist? <laughs> I've been going through a, a nostalgic phase. So uh, a lot of like nineties pop Destiny's Child specifically. Mm. Nice. nice. Yeah. I, I've been starving for new music and I can't find anything that I like this year it's been scarce so i've been going through nostalgic 1990s music too yeah. from grunge to pop to you know just mm -hmm. the mix between pop so uh yeah i've been kind of doing the same what about your three apps pile it's a slack it's been 
incredibly helpful for our team, particularly in this virtual environment, just to, and, you know, I Slack Catherine all the time and, and our team. And it's a nice way to also just have a little bit of banter and, and some fun things sort of floating around as well, which are a little bit harder over email. Um, the second, um, you know, I've got two kids. Uh, and so, um, and when I'm working, which is during the day, I like to be able to keep an eye on them. And, and in particular, my 15 month who's at home, uh, 15 month old. And so my baby monitor, the iBaby app is, is one that I probably frequent. I looked at my apps to see which ones get the most usage. And it was actually that one uh, was high on the list. So I had to put it there. And then I'm a, I'm a true um, Boston gal. So I'd say probably my Duncan, my Duncan app. Uh, <laughs> I order my coffee every rewards. morning, pick it up. Yeah, I get those rewards. Yeah. I get my free coffee every few days. So that's awesome. Well, Pyle and Catherine, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background and all the great work you're doing as investors and obviously all the great advice on you know what's going on and, and how to obviously hopefully get in front of the two of you to, to to pitch their investment and hopefully you know be part of the portfolio. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for having us. And we're huge fans of what you're doing and and uh, we feel like we're in great company with with the other folks that you've had on the podcast. So thanks for having us. And an entrepreneur should definitely feel free to reach out to us. Um, you know, our emails are our first names at 406venture.com. So, um, you know, reach out. Yeah, thanks so much, Keith. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.